such is life. I guess when I think back, it was the misplaced spectacles that started it all. Or at least when I first noticed anything was amiss. Now don't get me wrong, I've been misplacing things all my life. It's what some might call one of my characteristics. And no amount of chiding from others or self-flagellation is going to modify that characteristic one whit. My mother once said that if I ever disappeared while on one of my far-flung travel flights of fancy, she wouldn't worry because I'd easily be traced by the personal property trailing in my wake. Now, it wasn't the misplacement of the spectacles that troubled me at all. Well, no more than the rest of us who hold at least four pairs to help us find the precious ones we've misplaced. No, it was more where they appeared that had me rewinding the recording of my life. My long experience has told me that when items are lost, there are some places they are most likely to be skulking, and others they absolutely will not. If you're like me, you know it makes the process of hunter elimination much smoother. Well, you know for sure where they aren't. Spectacles. Let's see. Under the cushions? No. Camouflaged in the floral Westminster in a desperate attempt at suicide? Oh, come on, I haven't been that bad a spectacle, Mother. No. In the shed? Beside the Never Start mower? Nope. After eliminating the twentieth likely spot, I waved the white flag and broke out a fresh pair. It took three months and a particularly sunny day at a particular time of the year for me to see the curious glinting on the top of the 22,000 litre rainwater tank some five metres up in the air. Bloody crows, I thought stomping to the shed. It's easy to blame crows for everything. They never argue back. Just look at you with those querulous eyes, make gargle farting noises and arc off with disdainful flaps. I retrieved the specks with the help of a rickety ladder and garden rake gaffer tape to a length of bamboo and took care of the decadal cleaning of leaves from the tank at the same time. They wouldn't be too bad in a pinch, and pensions are all about pinching, aren't they? Still, specks and crows aside, there remained the question of how they got there in the first place. I haven't danced in the moonlight on that tank top, with or without a tank top, since, well, I can't remember when. Since the times of Harry, who shuffled off when he realised the age of Aquarius was never coming back. After the mystery of the specks on high, more idiosyncrasies came to my attention. I distinctly remembered buying three single-serve cans of Campbell's Minestrone. It was on special, yet when I went looking, only two were there, and that was at the beginning of winter. For goodness sakes, you'd think I'd have tasted it if I'd accidentally put Minestrone in my tea instead of sweetened condensed milk. Then... There was the adventure of Niagara at night. I'd been dreaming of my travels to the falls in 1990. The autumn leaves, 
the fancy hotels on the U.S. side, and the constant sound of rushing water, the constant sound of rushing water, rushing, rushing. I sat bolt upright in bed. This was no dream. There was the sound of water rushing straight, all right, coming from behind the bedroom door in the bathroom. Sliding the door open, I thought through the steam, and there it was, the shower running. I'd never known both tap washers to burst like that, so I turned the water off at the main, and next morning called Plumber John. He turned on the main's water, and sure enough, there it was again, full flow. He reached in and turned the cold faucet, then the hop, the deluge stopped. You must have left the taps on, he remarked, handing me his invoice for $150. Like heck, wouldn't you think I'd notice something like that? The final straw came with the buried clothing, though. That one I just couldn't overlook. It isn't every day you see the sleeve of your best salmon sweater sticking out of the ground among the day lilies beside the front gate. What the... I was down on my knees scrummaging it out when who should happen by but nasty neighbour Norton, whose real name is Noreen. Nosy Noreen. Nasty nosy Noreen. She parked her barge arse against the brick gate post peered over and mooed. Hey, Daff, why are you burying your winter woolies in the front yard? Ha! Hoping to grow some sheep? Got the bull by the tail as usual, I thought, fighting the dread of having to try to construct an explanation that I was struggling with myself. Ah, it must have been the blasted dog, nor... First my slippers and now the sweater. Maybe I should buy him a puppy to fret over. Nor eyed me off, as if she was adjusting her sight to better focus me in the crosshairs before broadcasting to the whole neighbourhood. You don't have a dog, Daff. Old Barfy died three years ago. Well, at least I'd had time to think. Oh, didn't I tell you? I've got myself a new dog for company. He's a rescue dog. His name's, um, Patter. Brenda helped me pick him out. Funny. I haven't heard or seen any puppies in your yard. They usually whine for the first few days until they settle in. Noreen was like a dog with a bone herself. Oh, he's, um, he's with the trainer at the minute. I tried to sound casual as I hauled the last of the sweater from its grave. Uh, gotta go, Nor. Left the kettle on. That's a pretty big hole for a puppy to be digging. How old did you say Patter was? I made my escape, mumbling something I thought sounded vaguely like a cross between six months and Smurf socks. And didn't Brenda give you one of those automatic kettles last Christmas after you blew up the burko and the neighbours called the cops when they thought a bomb had gone off? It was actually you, you nauseating nervous Nelly, I thought, mounting the stairs, hauling myself up by the balustrade for extra speed. I slammed the door and leant against it, feeling weak at the knees and outright queasy. Nauseating, nervous Nelly, nosy, nasty neighbour Noreen. 
What right did that old cow have to grill me? Oh, God, how many lies do I need to cover now? And how the hell did my sweater get into the garden? Not just lying there, mind, but a good 30 centimetres down, except for the telltale sleeve. But first things first, I grabbed the yellow pages with 1998 on the cover. Don't know why they don't deliver them anymore. Anyway, I rifled through until I found the peas. Thanks to shaky hands after a couple of misdials that had me in confused conversations with petals and blooms and parachutes for hire, a bored voice answered, PCA Rescue Shelter. Do you have any puppies that look like a patter? I needed to act fast. Pardon? I need a dog this minute. If I catch a cab over there, what have you got in stock? Well, that's not quite how it works. The voice sounded cautious. Usually, people like to choose a pet that suits them. They're all quite different, you know. He sounded as if he was scrambling for time and words. Mostly, people come and check the dogs out while we're checking them out. His voice sounded strained. (laughs) Could I ask if you have any ideas in mind? Are you looking for a guard dog? Companion pooch? Uh... He was trying to be helpful, and something else I couldn't quite put my finger on. I'll come right over. I disconnected and pressed speed dial for 131008. It only took 14 minutes to get there, and after taking a few details for who knows why, the voice at the end of the phone turned out to be a sad-eyed, bloodhound-looking, sandy-haired youth with the plastic name tag Brenton Watson took me to the kennels. Then I remembered why I'd loathed Barfy so much. The whole place smelled of dog. Whew! It took me back to the day I'd begged Harry to do something about the bad breath Barfy, but he was uncharacteristically truculent. Even on his deathbed, he instructed me to take care of that stinking canine bag of bones. He'll keep you safe and sane when I'm gone, Daff. Ha! I thought, well... He's been driving me nuts for the past decade. But Harry was Harry, and he didn't ask for or eat much, so what could I do? And so Harry went, and Barfy stayed, though I wish it had been the other way around. Now here I was confronted by another death row of cages, each inhabited with its individual variation on a theme, ranging from the full optimistic dancing pick me pick me through the whimpering wistfuls to the downright dignified who'd rather die than fawn and probably would at that so what are you thinking sherlock holmes faithful companion folded his paws in front of his belly well it didn't matter much to me so long as it wouldn't break the budget look young enough to be a puppy called patter and most of all was capable of burying a size 14 cable knit sweater. I quickly pointed to a bitza that looked like a dog fruit salad, biting my tongue from asking if they gift-wrapped, and scanned the room for a cage. 
Oh no, Mrs. Lester, you can't take him today. We need to keep him for a few days for vaccinations and the like. Were you thinking of neutering? It generally keeps them less aggressive. I nodded, thinking how close to the truth my lie to the inn had really been, while Brenton Bloodhound chased down a taxi for me. While the kettle was busy, not blowing up the neighbourhood, I moved on to the crux of the problem. The lost spectacles, the disappearing food, the constantly running shower, and all the other things that had culminated in the morning exhumation. What the heck was going on? And then, as if right on cue, it happened. The china apple bowl that I'd filled just two days before suddenly began jiggling up and down and then it bounced across the kitchen table to finally kamikaze to its death on the tile floor. I sat for a moment. Hmm, I'd wanted an answer. Now I wasn't so sure. What would Wonder Woman do? Who's, who's there? I mustered my most commanding tone. There was no one there. Of course not. How could there be? It was two in the afternoon and the evening shadows hadn't even thought of getting out of bed. So what was that shimmering outline barely visible against the curtains just behind the dead fruit bowl? I squinted through both parts of my bifocals. There was definitely something hovering on the other side of the room. The kettle clicked off. I jumped. I looked back. The shape was still there. Hello? I tried to sound neutral. The shape looked as if it was struggling to stay still. I can see you. The shape jerked and then began to shiver. Oh, for God's sake, get a grip, Gloria. I turned to focus on jiggling an English breakfast tea bag in the Lunar Park 1962 cup, plopped in two sweeteners and turned back to the table. The shape was still there, fainter, I thought, and, well, calmer. Though how you can call an almost transparent shape calm, I, I, I don't know. I settled myself at the end of the table to get a better look and decide whether the imminent heart attack might pass of its own accord. It looked like one of those clear jellyfish or pieces of glad wrap you see in the ocean sometimes. You can't really see the edges but you can see something there. Only this was the biggest piece of glad wrap I'd ever seen. Taller than me and roughly me shaped, though quivering round the edges. I peered under the table to check for legs, but it was too dark to see. So here's the thing. I kept my voice level. You can't keep messing with my stuff. The shape stood motionless. See, it's very inconvenient to not be able to find things and this morning I look loony in front of NorCal next door. You have to quit, okay? Okay. Holy cow, it speaks. The voice sounded surprisingly tranquil and made me think of Harry, though I couldn't say why. What are you? I felt like I should have started with a more interesting segue than what I'll bet was the same old what's a nice thing like you doing in a place like this type question. I'm what you might call a manifestation. 
A manny? You're a ghost? Oh, boy. No, not exactly. Though there are those who might say so. I thought ghosts haunted old houses where someone had died. Harry and I built this place brand new. It isn't an old cemetery, is it? I trawled my mind for the original title deed. We can be seen anywhere. Or everywhere. Or nowhere. The voice sounded apprehensive. Hmm. How long have you been here? It's hard to say. Or not say. Was that a ghost joke? Okay. Let's get down to the tin tacks. Are you a girl ghost or a boy ghost? That's rather indefinite, the voice wavered. This could make privacy in my own home tricky, I thought. So what's your name? I no longer have a name. The voice began to fade, and a scent of sadness wafted across the room. Well, this will never do. I have enough problems without having to deal with a depressed and nameless ghost. I think I'll call you Paul then. Paul? Well, sure. Why not? People supposed to Paul when they say a ghost? Paul, Paul, Paul T. Ghost. Get it? Perfect. I clapped and felt happy. <coughs> Wait until I tell noxious Noreen, I hooted. The Arctic reaction was swift and short, though the words that followed were as calm and measured in all that had proceeded. That may not be a good idea. She most likely wouldn't understand and might judge you in a way that could cause trouble. Not once she'd seen you. I looked up from draining the drugs. The shape had disappeared. Are you still there? I was feeling lonely already. How weird. Of course. I'm everywhere. How will I know where you are? Can you walk, fly, float? Whatever through walls. My mind was racing with all the possibilities. Oh, you'll know. Poor T sounded as if it was smiling and moving. The dish drainer at the doorway clattered to the floor. I picked it up, sighing. Just my luck to have a clumsy ghost. So, life with Patter... Poor T and me went along reasonably smoothly, with just the odd surprise here and there. There wasn't a lot of visual contact, though Patter seemed to be able to sense more than me, uttering a particular word when our housemate was near. I called it the phantom howl. Noreen called it a bloody nuisance. There were a few revelations, like the day I discovered Paul could leave the house. I mean, I know what everywhere and anywhere mean, but somehow I thought there were limits, a little like the ghost and Mrs Muir, though Paul T was nothing like Captain Grigg. I think what had me thinking the ghost zone somehow corresponded with the house boundaries was when Paul T suggested that it would be a good idea if people didn't call around any more. Just in case. I still remember the very words. I guess it had to do with being seen, though I couldn't quite figure it out. I mean, if Paul was visible, it proved I wasn't crazy. And if Paul stayed invisible, well... No one would be the wiser. 
Still, I'd become rather attached to that old wraith, and in truth no one had very much visited me for years, except for Brenda, but she was busy with Laurie and the kids. On balance, I had to admit it was great that they had built such a solid life together and she hadn't turned into one of those girls who marry in haste and then return to set up base camp with her parents forever and ever. Amen. No, it was turning out just fine for Pater, Paul, T and me until the supermarket surprise. It was in Woolworths. I was sniffing the rock melons for ripeness, as you do, when all the apples in the bay on the opposite side began to cascade to the floor with a strange sliding motion. I knew immediately what it was and realised instantly how bright the lights in those shops are. My God, if someone else spotted Paul, what a disaster. You need to be more careful. I hissed over the bin. So do you, Paul T breathed back. Who are you talking to, Dad? Oh, I'd recognise that bovine billow anywhere. Uh, just trying to save some of those apples, Nor. I hope my voice sounded normal. Why did you say to be more careful? More careful? More careful? I didn't say anything about being more careful. Yes, Daff, you did. I heard you say, You need to be more careful, in a very secretive way, I might add. I gave her a look as if I thought she was crazy, and pondered a moment before exclaiming, Oh, no! No, not careful. Pearful. Pearful? That really had the end one stump. When all the apples were falling, I realised I needed more pear for the pies I'm making. For the first time in all the time I'd known her, Noreen looked dumbfounded. I picked three pears from the adjacent bin and triumphantly added another adjective to my endless numbed. I didn't say any more about the incident when I arrive home. Poor T is sensitive enough already about its spatial dysphasia, although keeping the house in order has become kind of unmanageable, and to think I had been concerned about the patter mess. But then, as the song goes, One grey day it happened. I arrived home from the park where Paul likes to humidify in the steam above the duck pond while Patter and I take a walk. Apparently, fogging is the equivalent to our bathing and it's one time I'm thankful for the attributes of invisibility. The front door was unlocked. It didn't look good. Brenda was perched on one arm of the couch, but the real kicker was that she'd brought Laurie with her. He was leaning against the door jamb, eyes staring at the floor and kicking up the carpet pile where it had become a little flattened from foot traffic. Hi, this is a surprise, I tried to sound matter-of-fact. Mum, we need to talk. Nori next door says she's seen you burying your cardigan in the front garden and talking to yourself in woolies. I wasn't, I began. 
Want a cuppa? I'm just about to put the kettle on. Wasn't expecting you. Brenda popped as if I'd tasered her. Mum, she exclaimed, this place is a pigsty. Better than the cow pen next door, I thought. How long is it since you've cleaned the place? Oh, I do a little bit as I get to it, I shrugged. Look at all the broken fittings. If you'd had a fall, you could cut yourself to pieces. Now, how did all that happen? In truth, I almost let the ghost out of the bag. Then I noticed a shimmer in the doorway, and with that, all the books slid off the shelf above the door, raining down around Laurie. I have to say, I never knew that man could move so fast. Solid and steady was how I'd always seen him. But did he show some hidden talent for that dodge and weave? <gasps> That's it, Brenda exploded. Not only does this place need a good clean-up, Laurie thinks the foundations might be sinking, and I'd say that falling shelf pretty much proves it. We need to move you into other accommodation for a time while we get it sorted. But it's only... I began... A curtain rail clattered to the floor in the main bedroom, drowned out the rest of my protest. So, here I am, in a chirpy little shoebox, waiting for the house to be fixed. Brenda says they have paid the rent way in advance, just in case the repairs take longer than estimated, as they always do, Brenda declares. There isn't a great deal to occupy the days. The meals are all provided in the dining room, or they'll bring them to me on a stable table. Bonnie, who comes twice a week to clean, is much nicer than Marianne from Botswana, who wouldn't even look me in the eye and always seemed in a hurry to get away. As I said, there isn't a great deal to do. Sometimes Patter and I wander down to the duck pond to watch the mist rising and sometimes I sit on the seat in the garden to go to Woolies for groceries, but I always seem to miss the bus. I asked one of the girls for a timetable. You must be going at the wrong time, she said. Such is life, I replied. And death, Porty added. I giggled, <laughs> but not too loudly, in case bat-eared nurse Ratchet with the furry face and batshit attitude was still flapping in the corridor. No matter whether you live in the city or the burbs, a farm or a zoo, there's always a nauseating, numb, nervous, nelly, nasty, nosy, noxious Noreen nearby. You have been listening to Such Is Life, written by Joy Duck and performed and produced by Brianda Cross. To find out a little more about Joy and other fast fiction episodes, please go to our website, Fast Fiction Podcasts. Dot com. And it would be nice if you could give us a review on your favourite podcast platform. Thank you.